The reading is from Romans 1, 16 through 32, 12, 1 through 2. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is by the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what, be can, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their, hearts fool their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to the impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which, your, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you, Jeff. As we've been going through this series this summer on gender and sexuality, we've covered a lot of uh, really difficult and important topics uh, from what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to have sex? Why are we created as sexual beings? What role does that play in our longings and desires? What's the role of marriage? What's the role of singleness? And there's been really kind of two clear ideas, I think, that have really come out of this this summer. On the one hand, what's been very clear is that God really does have a very clear intention for men and women in this world. He has a very clear and beautiful intention for what it means to be a man, for what it means to be a woman, a holistic vision of life that goes far beyond just one behavior or one set of things, what our culture may say, where any of these things are, but that in God's view of us and his intention for us, there's a tremendous amount of freedom and joy that he has intended. He's intended there to be the freedom and joy of being a man, right? Not having to conform to the patterns of the world, to the culture, to the expectations, but just to be a man and to be in Christ, 
that there's great freedom and joy in being a woman, not conforming to the patterns and to the expectations of the world and what it means to be a woman, but to be a woman in Christ. That there's great freedom and joy in the expression and in experience of sex within marriage, and that there's great freedom and joy in the experience of singleness and celibacy. That nothing is outside of God's good intentions. Nothing is outside of his plan. He has a distinct plan for each of us, including men and women. But what's also come across pretty clearly as we study these topics is that while God has an intention for men and women, he also, there's also the differences in experiences. Not everybody is experiencing these intentions and this goodness in the same way. The effects of sin are really widespread and affect all of God's good intentions and all of our experiences. Gender and sexuality, as you know, as we all know, is really a war zone in culture, in families, in churches. These topics just produce so much fear and hurt, guilt and shame because of the effect of sin. There are political wars raging that deal with sexuality and with gender, and there's religious wars that have been raging and are continuing to rage as well over what does it mean to be a man and a woman? What does it mean to properly express these things? There's wars within families, as John was referencing. Many of you have been in the midst of those wars, maybe not quite sure on what side of the battle you're even in. And a lot of innocent people are victims in all of these wars. There's a reality of sin that we just can't escape. And there's probably very few topics in which we feel the reality of sin more strongly than when it comes to sex and to gender. We live in a very fallen world. We live in a world in which everyone has a sense that something is just not right when it comes to sex, when it comes to our expressions of these things. Not everyone experiences the effects of the fall equally. Not everybody is experiencing the intention of sex equally, and not everyone is experiencing the struggles and the discomfort that comes along with that equally as well. For many people, right, and you know this, we see this, we know these people, some of us are these people, in essence all of us are, but for many the biblical picture, or even cultural pictures, either picture, of what it means to be a man, of what it means to be a woman, of what it means to be in a marriage, of what it means to have a full and happy life, just seems foreign. Something that's an impossibility. I can never live up to that image. I could never be that kind of man. I could never be that type of woman. I could never have that type of marriage. I could never have that type of sex life. I could never have whatever this is that I need to be fulfilled. And for some of us, it's not even something to be desired. There are real people in our culture, in our world, right, in our lives that feel ostracized and hurt, who feel left out, that when it comes to sexual attraction, orientation, and identity, all of this feels wrong, whose feelings and experiences don't line up with what the majority of the population feels. There's a sexual minority among us and in our world today and in our cultures, our city, our neighborhoods, our churches, and our families right, that don't feel the way that all of us feel, or at least the majority feel. Just some numbers for you on the, when it comes to this, because sometimes as a church, we have to actually be kind of woken up to some of the reality that's around us. It's easy when you're in the majority 
to not think about or realize what really is going on because you're so distant from it. According to the Williams Institute report, which is kind of the, the biggest, most well-respected report when it comes to gender and sexuality, when it comes to same-sex attraction, LGBT, those types of things. When I use the word LGBT, that means lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. That's kind of a catch-all for those who would not identify themselves as heterosexual. Now, they've added a few more to those, but still the majority can kind of be lumped into that LGBT group. The Williams Institute did a study in 2011 that most would argue is still the best. There's been some more recent ones, but some sociologists don't use that more recent studies to be as accurate. But in 2011, according to the Williams Institute study, over 11% of respondents to the survey uh, answered that they have had same-sex sexual attraction. That's 11%. Over 11% have said they have been sexually attracted to their own sex. Of those same respondents, over 8% said that they've engaged in some sort of same-sex sexual act at some point in their life. So over 8% have engaged in same-sex behavior of some sort during their life. But when it comes to identifying, only 3.8% of all of those surveyed would identify themselves as LGBT. Right, so 11% say that they've had same-sex attraction, or do currently have same-sex attraction. 8% say they have engaged in sexual activity with their own gender. 3.8% identify themselves as LGBT. Within the state of Minnesota, we're really just kind of mirroring the national averages. It's really, in 2016, so this is later, in 2016, Minnesota's population, 3.8%, again, that same number, identify themselves as LGBT. And when you break down that number of that 3.8%, 1.3% of the population of Minnesota identifies themselves as gay or lesbian. So 11% are engaging or have sexual attraction, 8% engage in sexual behavior of some sort in their life, 1.3% would actually identify themselves as gay, as lesbian, as a homosexual. 1.6% identify themselves as bisexual, and 0.3% identify themselves as transgender. So that's a total number, roughly, of our population of around 118,000 people, real people, that are around us, that we know, that are in our churches, that are in our neighborhoods and our families. And there's a, the numbers and experiences really show that there's really a difference in experiences and feelings and identities. That it's not easy just to lump everybody into certain categories and just talk about gay people or talk about people who have you know, same-sex orientations or feelings or attractions. There's a real continuum. You have this 11% who have acknowledged that they have feelings. You have 8% that actually do something with those feelings. But then you have less than 4% who actually would identify themselves as those feelings, as not the norm, as in this mi minority group in the LGBT. And of that, it's 1% that would identify themselves as a homosexual. Now, what's interesting, too, with the numbers, they've really stayed consistent, incredibly consistent since the 70s. The numbers haven't been rising in terms of those who are identifying themselves in these ways. There's going to be fluctuations. There's numbers that are going to fluctuate, but especially within that number that is homosexual, that number has actually been dropping 
down to 1.3%. Bisexual has increased. And the total number that would just kind of call themselves LGBT has slightly risen. Um, but it demonstrates really that the behaviors are not on the increase in America, despite what the cultural war narratives may be telling us. The, the behaviors are not increasing, but the rhetoric and the fighting seems to be increasing, and the stakes seem to be getting higher and higher and higher. Because when we talk about homosexuality, when we talk about the LGBT community, when we talk about these things, just as, as John was talking about his family story, we're not talking about behaviors. The behavior has been constant. The behavior has always been there since man and woman have existed. What we really are talking about is this question of identity. And that seems to be the significant marker as well within these feelings, behaviors, and identity. And what's interesting, like I was mentioning within those numbers, every age group, so baby boomers, Gen X, all those, the numbers of those who would identify themselves as LGBT have dropped in each one of those over the last 10 years, except for millennials. That's the only age group that's seen an increase. Among millennials, that's the number that's jumped and has jumped significantly. Up to 7.3% of millennials will identify as LGBT. Every other age group has been going down, like Gen X, which is my age group, has gone down every year, those who are identifying themselves. And that probably makes sense as people age and determining who they are. I mean, just think about who I say I am now compared to who I would have said I was when I was 18 or 21 or any of those things. Uh, and, and that's also been one of the big shifts. In the 1970s, the average age of coming out, if you were homosexual, was in your 20s, mid-20s, was the average age in which someone came out of the closet, when someone identified themselves as either gay or LGBT. In 2005, the average age was 15. So it's a big jump. So the average age of coming out in 2005 was 15. Today, and the numbers are really hard when it comes to below the millennial because they don't really poll and survey children well for various good reasons. But now the average age, they argue at least, is, or at least what it should be and what most would argue it is, is 12 is the average age of coming out, of identifying yourself as LGBT. The majority of those people, when asked to survey or that millennial generation, how did you come out? They all say they did it the first time on social media. Um, I came out to my friends on social media. Do your parents know? The majority of those people would say no. I haven't told my parents, but I did tell you know, the world through social media. The number, that identity piece, the behavior stagnant, the behavior has always been there, but this question of identity and when to identify yourself this way and the ramifications of that are really, really strong. And the problem isn't the behavior, and we want to make sure that's clear. The, the, while the behavior and sexual immorality, we talked about that a lot in that sermon on sexual immorality, and that's sexual immorality is wrong. Scripture is very clear on that. But the, that's not what's on the rise. That doesn't seem to be what's at the heart of our cultural problem and of what's at the heart of the problem of the church, too, as we deal with this within our world and how we love people in our family, how we help and love people in the church, how we help and love everybody. That's not the issue. The issue is one of identity and being labeled because there are literal war victims all around us that are getting run over by both sides. There are young kids and adults who are being told to make their identity centered around something and then being used and not genuinely loved. And then there are being ostracized and disregarded by the church and by the religious circle as well for these same things and just caught in the crossfire 
without knowing where they could actually exist, where they could be loved, where they could be known. So what's going on? The, the issue and what's underneath this, it's such a polarizing and painful topic because there are those competing worldviews and perspectives. Right? And George went over this a couple of weeks ago with his sermon on gender dysphoria, and that was really helpful to be reminded and to see those different perspectives because there are very clear perspectives when it comes to same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and same-sex identity. And many of us, I would say within our church, all three views are probably present in some way. If you remember those three views he, he went over, right, there's that more traditionalist view of same-sex behavior that says, look, this is a choice. You're choosing to engage in this behavior. It's wrong. It goes against Scripture. It goes against God's teaching. And by doing this, you're trying to undermine truth, and you're trying to undermine the church, you're trying to undermine traditional family, you're trying to, go, you're trying to undermine what it means to be a man and a woman. Very traditionalist view. Right? So you view the, the people who are engaged in this behavior as, well, really enemies of the truth, and enemies of the church, enemies of traditional families. There's that more kind of middle view, the more kind of sympathetic view that would view it as, Homosexuality, same-sex orientation is a result of a fallen world. It's not a choice, but it's also not normal, but may hesitate in calling it sin. We'll just say this is an abnormality that you're suffering, or people could suffer from this as a result of the, of the fall, but not wanting to kind of fully bring Scripture into play, but just say this is not normal, but that's okay, right? And then there's the far, the more on the left side, the more activist perspective, the more diversity perspective that would just say, look, this is all good. You know, deconstructing gender and sexuality has been long overdue. We need to dis disregard all of these things and undermine those teachings and celebrate all expressions when it comes to gender and sexuality and sexual preferences. And so we walk in a world in which these competing worldviews and perspectives are all kind of intermingling and, and the confusion is really palpable. And what's come out of that, what's come out of these culture wars really for the last 20, 30 years, and some of you are old enough to, to kind of be members of that culture war, or at least maybe children of the culture war of the 80s and, and the 90s, what's really kind of come out, the war is, is basically over, right? In many ways, the conservative perspective has lost, and that might be a good thing. But now the, the, the narrative, the dominant narrative that exists today is a very powerful and compelling script for someone who's really identifying with these issues, for someone who doesn't fit the norm, which is a large number, 11% of us would say at times or much of our life, I don't feel like everybody else. I don't have that same attractions. I don't have that same situation. Well, there's a very powerful script that the culture has arrived at and offers to them. Here, well, I'll kind of walk through it a little bit. This comes from Mark Yarhouse's book, Christian, or homosexuality and the Christian. It's a highly recommended book. George had posted a link to it on Connect. Uh, it's really informed a lot of the ministry team as we've discussed and been studying about same-sex attraction and those types of things. And this is what he would argue is the cultural script, and I think it's really, it's really accurate. It, it starts, that script kind of starts with the idea that, look, same-sex attraction sing, signals is a signal of a naturally occurring or intended by God distinction. So the fact that you're having these feelings is a signal 
that you're different, and God intended you to be different. This is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's intended diversity that God has given to this world. You're having these feelings. That's a good signal that you are supposed to be different than all of us, and that's part of God's intention for you. The second part to that script would go, same-sex attraction Attractions are the way you know who you really are as a person. So if God created you with these feelings, well, you should explore those feelings. If you want to find out who you are then, then you need to discover who you are. By exploring those feelings, engage in these things, much as much what John was speaking of for his son, right, that encouragement that's given to explore yourself, explore your desires, find out who you are. The, next, the third part of the script then, same-sex attractions are at the core of who you are as a person. So these feelings that you've been exploring and discovering is at the very core of who you are. Therefore, if those attractions are at the core of who you are, well, then the behavior is just going to extension then of who I am. If I feel this way, and if I'm supposed to feel this way, well, then I have to act that way, too, if I'm going to be a consistent human. Which I, I mean, which makes sense. You can understand why within the homosexual community, right, they would look at Christians who say, well, you can be gay, you just can't act gay, and say, what? What are you talking about? That's an extension. You can't tell me I can't act that way if I feel that way. That's an extension of who I am. And then finally, that picture then of self-actualization. That's where you actually find behavior that matches who you really are. So this would be within the gender dysphoria as well, that feeling of like, I just can't find something that matches, right? This, this experience isn't matching what I want or how I feel good or what gives me satisfaction. But when you can find it, self-actualization of your sexual identity is crucial for your fulfillment. To live a good life, to be fully fulfilled, I have to be able to behave in a way that actually matches my sexual attractions and orientation and desires. It's a very compelling script, right? This is the script that most of our culture would argue is absolutely right on, right? Our feelings and behavior is good. Your feelings and behavior are normal. You should explore them, and you should find out who you really are. And when you find out who you really are, you should pursue that truth, right? Find that truth, operate in that truth, and live that truth, right? Who are we to stop you from doing those types of things? Really what the need is, and you can see, right? We need a better script. We need a new script in terms of what we believe when it comes to same-sex orientation, when it comes to same-sex feelings and attractions, when it comes to these things. And now Mark also in the book gives us what he would argue is a biblical script, which I think is compelling, right? Here's, the, here's what Mark would say the biblical script is. Same-sex attraction does not single, signal a categorical distinction, right? But is one of many human experiences that are not the way it's supposed to be. That already is probably the biggest difference and hardest hurdle, right? We wouldn't say that this is good. We wouldn't say that God intended for that 1.3% or for the 11%, maybe not that, but the 8%. We would say that, no, God doesn't intend that. That's not part of God's intention for humanity. What he has intended, right, and the scripture is pretty clear, 
It's a man and a woman to unite in marriage and in sex, in participating in God's plan to bring offspring into the world, to advance the kingdom, to experience pleasures and joys that mirror the wedding feast that awaits us. That's God's intention. And everything outside of that is not God's intention. And that homosexuality or these same-sex feelings and attraction is within that category of something that God has not intended, a reality, but not something that is intended by God to be good. The same-sex attractions, that second piece, may be part of your experience. Absolutely. You know, and it's not trying to get rid of them, like, oh, you just, that's, forget about it. Everybody, yeah, just a, that's something as a kid. You cannot think that way. You don't have to have those thoughts. You don't have to have that experience. No, it, they're a part of your experience. But they are not the defining element of your identity. And the third piece, you can choose to integrate your experiences of attraction to the same sex into a gay identity. That's an option. And that would be the cultural option that they would really strongly encourage. Or, on the other hand, you can choose to center your identity around other aspects of your experience, including your biological sex, your gender identity, and so on. You have a choice. I can center my identity around my desires and feelings and experiences. Or I could center my identity around things that can't change, that don't change, other experiences, other parts of who I am. And then the most compelling aspect of personhood for the Christian is one's identities in Christ a central and defining aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Right, because both scripts are very different. The cultural script, the emphasis is upon discovery. Okay, you've had these feelings. You have these feelings. Okay, you've acted on those feelings. You should, cont- you, you should figure this out. You should explore this. You should find out. Maybe you are gay. Maybe you need to keep trying this. Maybe that is who you are. You should, well, try. Figure it out. I encourage you to explore, right? That's a cultural narrative. The biblical narrative would be, right, you have these feelings, you have these desires. How can you integrate that with who you really are, though, in Christ? Can you take those feelings and desires and bring them in to your identity in Christ and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, right? That they're subservient to those greater experiences, greater identity markers. I'm not saying that the feelings go away, the attraction may never go away, but can you bring that into, can you integrate that with a bigger identity, a greater identity that can't be shaken, that doesn't change? Because the problem with the discovery worldview and that cultural narrative, that cultural script, is that it shifts. You create an identity, and that's what the numbers are showing with these survey data every year and every five years, ten years. The numbers keep moving because you're building identity around feelings and thoughts and experiences that shift and that move. Is it possible for me to have an identity that is unshakable? Is it possible for me to have who I am that can't be assailed and that I could bring these things into and I could really wrestle with? Well, what, what does it mean then? For me to be a man in Christ, to be a woman in Christ, but to also have same-sex struggling with feelings and attractions. How can, I, how can I deal with this? What does that mean for me? What does that mean to be faithful to Christ within those ideas? But the problem, in a lot of ways, <laughs> like knowing the two scripts is fine, 
But that's not the big takeaway I, I, I don't want to make for us today. It, it's helpful. It's really helpful, I think, for us to identify like what the culture is saying and how powerful that script is. And it, it helps to be able to identify with the sexual minority among us that doesn't fit in, that doesn't feel like they have a home, that doesn't feel like there's a community, that doesn't feel like there's a place for them to really be. So understanding the script is helpful for that. Understanding what the scripture teach is helpful as well. But there's a bigger issue for us than that because what's lost in all of this are the actual men and women, right? The actual brothers and sisters of ours who are the victims of this identity war. And what they don't need necessarily is more biblical wisdom. Right? We can have all the wisdom in the world, but if we don't have love, <laughs> it doesn't do anything. And that was much of what John's story was too in the sense of you may know the truth, you may know what advice to give, you may understand the scriptural teaching about an identity in Christ and how it's built, and, but it means very little. Why is it so hard for the church to love our LGBT brothers and sisters, right? Those among us who identify as that minority, who struggle with this attraction, with this behavior, and with their identities. Why is it hard? Because it's incredibly hard, right? The church has not had a good track record when it comes to loving that community. And that community, for very good reason, does not look to the church as a loving place or as a place where they could start having these conversations where they would feel welcomed and loved and cared for, where they could bring these questions to the church. Because in many ways, the church is not a, a, self, a very safe place. But unfortunately, they're not finding a safe place anywhere else either. The schools are not safe. The university system is not safe. Uptown is not safe. There's, they're not finding that safe community that they're looking for either. No one is. So what are we to do? What prevents us from loving them? Well, the, real, the issue is, is really our own need for a script, a better script, a gospel script, because what prevents us from loving the sexual minority and what prevents the sexual minority from being at home in the church is really just our own self-righteousness. It's pride and arrogance is very powerful. Right, when we think about who we are, we think about our responses. I mean, some of you have been probably, oh, all of you have been sitting there during this service so far, hearing John, hearing this. And all of us respond a little differently to some of these narratives, right? Some of you may be responding in your heart throughout this whole time with a little bit of hostility, right? A little bit of, man, when are they just going to say it's a sin? When will they just finally say <laughs> This person needs, they need to repent, and then they could come into the church. Like, when will that happen? When is that finally going to come? Right? Well, that's, that's in a lot of our hearts, right? We see, because we fall into that more traditionalist view. You say, man, this behavior, I can't handle it. That's sin. You got to call it out as sin. We got to talk about sin. We got to treat sin seriously. For others of us, right, you may be sitting there waiting, thinking, well, when are they, finally, when are they just going to say, you know what, it's okay? This isn't their fault, homosexuals. We just need to accept them and love them for who they are. Why, do we, why are we giving them such a hard time? Why are we even talking about this so much? Just 
stop harping on homosexuality and this same-sex things. Man, talk about other sin. Why do they keep harping on this over and over and over again? Because there's nothing wrong with it. Some of us have this more, much more accepting view or a heart that just wants to accept it as normal. Or there may be some of us who are just really thankful in our life that we don't have any homosexuals around us. And you say, well, I'm glad they're talking about it. I'm also glad that I don't have to do anything with this. Right? Oh, man, I wouldn't even know where I would start. I'm, I, I, would, I prefer to keep a little distance. I'm glad I live in the neighborhood I live, and I'm glad that I think everyone around me is straight, and I'm really glad that in my family everyone seems straight, so I don't even have to deal with these things. The response in our heart really reflects right, the amount of self-righteousness that we have. Because all of those perspectives, none of them demonstrate any love towards our brothers and sisters. None of it. That hostile expectation of people to repent of their sin and eagerness for sin to be sin, whoa, where is that coming from? Are you as eager for people to find your sin and to call you out in your sin? Why are you so eager for sinners to be called sinners? (laughs) Why aren't you eager for sinners to find mercy and grace? Are you eager for you to be called out? Or are you expecting others to view you generously? The acceptance picture, it, it, it's not love to accept sin. It's not love to tell people to lie to them, to their face. It's inconsistent in your heart. If you believe the word of God is the word of God and you believe that scripture is true, if you believe that God's intention is for a man and a woman to be married and to have sex, and that's it. This isn't loving, to just accept all other behavior and say, you're fine. No, it's really, you're, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I would never say that's wrong. What do you mean? <laughs> how can you love them without speaking truth? How, how can you love them without actually caring about their behavior, about caring about their life? And then obviously that perspective of being distant. What, who are you, right? To try to sit in that kind of distance from the world in that pharisaical place of at least I don't have to deal with this, at least I don't have that feeling. Whew, thankfully, in my marriage, we don't struggle with any of these things. Thankfully, I don't. The self-righteousness and the hypocrisy of that and the, un, the, in amount, the little amounts of love that are present, it's truly staggering. Right? What we need as a church and as a community of faith is we need to see ourselves and our brothers and sisters through the lens of the gospel. We need to have that gospel script in front of us all the time. We need to have our hearts melted and moved. I have to stop being so self-righteous if I have any hope in this world, not just of reaching my LGBT friends and family, but if I want to just be loving, if I want to have love in my life, I need to have the gospel script in front of me. I need to honestly see myself or as Paul would say, right, I need to soberly think about myself and measure myself according to the gospel. Because when we do that, we take an honest assessment of ourselves. We honestly see our sin for what it is. And I honestly see that I am worse off than, than I ever thought I was right now. Right? It's easy to get into that mode of like, I was a sinner by God's grace, I have left my sin, 
and I am now righteous, walk in righteousness. I am not. My righteousness is not my own. Yes, I have put off sin, but it's, I take no credit for that. <laughs> that is by the Spirit and by Christ indwelling in me that I have been able to do those types of things. This is not make me a good person. What's in me, the flesh in me, is not good. I am no different. My sins are different, but they are no better. They're no less. They're no more less significant. So I can say, oh, you need to repent without me seeing my own sin for what it is and my need for repentance. But then also the gospel helps to show us the honestness. It makes us become honest and serious with our sin. But it also helps us to see grace for what it is. That although I am worse off than I ever dreamed or imagined, I'm also more loved than I could have dared hoped for. And if I could be loved in that way, how can I not show love to someone else? If me, who is the worst, right? That's what Paul will say. I'm the worst sinner. He doesn't say I was a worst, I was the worst, or I used to be really a bad. He says, I am the worst. If Christ can love me and make me this new creation, how, right? I'm broken and my heart worships him. And my humility grows and grows. My arrogance dwindles and dwindles. And we start to gain a different perspective. We gain that perspective like Jesus really called his disciples to have, where you see your sin as the size of a log, and you see your neighbor's sin as a speck. That's the gospel perspective we need to have to the culture and to the world and to ourselves. You can see the sin. I see, right? we're, We're not called to ignore sin. I see the sins in my family, my house church, my neighborhood, my city. I can see people's sins, of course. But I also see my sin. And my sin is a huge log in comparison. It doesn't mean I don't deal with their sin. It doesn't mean I don't push for that sin to be dealt with. It just means I keep things in the right order and I see things properly. It enables us to speak the truth, but with humility and with love. Because the goal of all of this. The goal is not to turn people who have same-sex feelings and attraction to having heterosexual feelings and attraction. That's not the goal. Homosexuality does not send anyone to hell, just as if heterosexuality does not send anybody to heaven. Those aren't the binaries. It's not like we just have to turn gay people into straight people and our work here is done. No, right? The problem is our self-righteous hearts that result in all kinds of sin, like Paul listed. And that, that passage is often used to condemn homosexuality, but there is everything listed. <laughs> when you exchange the truth for a lie, sin is the result. The issue is becoming, is that. What we want, the goal, is a living faith, a living hope. And to do that, we need to actually have Christ in front of us. We need to become a hopeful community with a biblical perspective Christ didn't come into this world to take away our suffering, to take away our feelings, to take away our experiences. By God's grace, we can experience more and more freedom in him. But we'll never fully experience that until he comes back. That's not why Christ came. He didn't come to explain our feelings. He didn't come to explain our suffering. But he came and he filled our suffering and our confusion and deepest longings with nearness. He is near to us in our position. He knows us intimately. He knows us better than we will ever know ourselves. 
and he is close to us. So as a community, we're called then not just to a biblical confidence and belief in what Scripture teaches, not just to know God and to know the truth of the gospel, but rather to be a community that actively experiences the freedom of Christ, that actually, despite our feelings and our circumstances and our experiences all around us, that we cling to Christ and we build our identities around him. A community that builds its identity around Christ and seeks to understand, integrate our whole person into it. That's the hypocrisy that the LGBT community can clearly see in us, is this, well, you want me to deal with my stuff. What about your stuff? (laughs) Well, that's the point. Of course, we're all trying to integrate our feelings and our emotions and our experiences into this identity in Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? That's what we're all after. And we're all on that same process and journey. A community that actually believes that the gospel is big enough to reconcile and redeem all parts of ourselves. That's what the world needs.